Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Tuesday, November 8th, 2016, Election Day. Can you guess that the theme for our show today is politics and horror? For a lot of horror fans, horror is recreational, therapeutic, a pressure valve, or just a great roller coaster ride. But in times of social and political strife, horror seems to surge in popularity. It happened in the World War II 1940s with the universal mashups of their monster movie Monarchy. It happened in the nuclear bomb scare 1950s with all the atomic radiated giant bugs. Civil rights in Vietnam inspired Night of the Living Dead and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And here we are in 2017, still reeling in a state of shock by the turn of events wrought by our last presidential election. But it's not just America that's churning. Brexit was just as big a social earthquake in the EU, and the world seems to be filling with terrors we thought we had overcome. Two of my favorite filmmakers have plied their movies with metaphor. Joe Dante, probably best known for comedic horror films The Howling and Gremlins, and John Landis, director of An American Werewolf in London and The Blues Brothers, have injected social consciousness into horror for years. And they're here with us to talk about where it came from and what it all means. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. Okay, in talking about politics in horror films, one of my favorite memories um, from doing Masters of Horror was going to a festival in Italy, the Torino Film Festival. Both of you guys were there, a couple of the other directors as well. Joe, your episode, Homecoming, which was uh, a deep critique of the Iraq War at the time. It was a screed. It was, no, it was a zombie movie. And the point is, it wasn't a screed because it was masqueraded through this entertaining zombie movie. I don't, it, it wasn't masqueraded. No, it That's, wasn't masqueraded. It wasn't masked. It was pretty overt. It was, it was pretty overt. I mean, yeah. it was like being hit over the head with a hammer. It no, was, no, 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 no. <laughs> actually, he's... He's wrong. It was very powerful and good. but Yeah, the point is it's an entertaining zombie story that was also about something much more than that at a time when nobody was criticizing the government in, involvement in the Iraq war. There was a 10-minute standing ovation for Homecoming at this festival, this crowded non-horror genre festival. So tell me, did that feel like a validation of what you had done? Well, you know, if you've ever had an, an ovation like that, it, on, on one level, it's a little embarrassing <laughs> because it's it's just all about you. Um, and Don Coscarelli was standing next to me. He was holding my hand up like I was a, like a prize fighter. I just won something, <laughs> and I said, "Don." Um, it was it was very nice. It was very validating. Uh, I think that. Uh, Aside from the quality of the movie itself, I think a lot of it was simple relief that all the Americans hadn't drunk the Kool-Aid and that there were actually people out there who had a different point of view than the one that was being promulgated, which was basically cheerleading. I mean, but that was, was, that's the Italians, but, it, but I think it was well, very well received 
in the States. And what's interesting, and the, that's the power of film, and you talk about Godard said, all film is political. And he's right. Whether you intend it or not. So when Joe makes a straight, a st- it's like George Romero. I mean, there are a lot of John Carpenter, a lot of overtly political filmmakers who put their politics in their movies. Um, weirder are the ones who put their politics in their movies and don't realize they've done it. You know, mm-hmm. where you go, why is this the sixth child I've seen molested? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but well, I think Americans, I just. I disagree that nobody was speaking out. I, and I, I also think that f- what Joe did masterfully is for something, a polemic, to work. You really shouldn't be necessarily aware of it. Right. Um, right. And, and Joe's movie could play as just a zombie picture if you weren't thinking about it. That was my point. Yeah. Right. It, but it's not masquerading. No, it's, it's not. not. You're right. That's the intention. wrong word. Yeah. Um, and but sociopolitical issues have been delivered in a lot of your stuff and yours as well, John. What was the first time that you saw a film where you were aware of it? I mean, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers was what, 1954, I think? 56. 56. And a lot of people saw that as an anti-communism movie. Well, a lot of people have seen it every which way. And Siegel denies it's uh, an anti-communism. Yeah, well, you worked with Don Siegel. He was an actor in one of your movies, yes, briefly. Yes. But you t- <laughs> did you talk to him about this? Because he's been interviewed saying it was exactly the opposite of an anti-communism movie. It was an anti-encroachment of, of civil deadness. In the 50s, there was a huge pushback against... The suburban, the the mythology, well, not the mythology, the reality of America becoming middle class suburban, really the success. And so you have tons of movies like Stepford Wives and, gosh, help me here. I mean, millions of movies that basically deal with the, you know, the metaphor that is brilliant is in David Lynch's... Uh, Blue Velvet. Thank you. Where you <laughs> see the beautiful manicured lawn and the lovely house and then... You go, under, you go underneath the ground and you see the grubs and the bugs. Well, it's like ear. human ear, <laughs> <Yeah>. severed ear. <laughs> um, what's beneath, and even stuff like Mad Men. And there were tons of like melodramas, you know, torrid affairs and all kinds of stuff about the the real what's really underneath the uh, american dream well even well dawn of the dead is also i mean a satirical book at, at that mall culture uh, and the zombification of america well that's one of the great metaphors of all time the zombies in the mall yeah. the, why do they come here because they they like they like to hear <laughs> yeah they're shocking <laughs> it's a, the they what they were used around. to you know body snatchers has been remade every generation yeah there've been four versions uh, and uh, every generation i guess gets the one that it deserves <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's a it's a remarkably durable um, story, and and of course the idea of people being taken over by uh, alien beings who are guiding their well invaders actual, from Mars yeah was has preceded one of, that one of the great lines I think in scary cinema because it's directed at children. William Cameron Menzies was a smart guy, and it's directed at children. If you notice, it's all authority figures: it's parents, it's teachers, it's cops, but. That wonderful line when the kid says, uh, I think he says it, she says it to the teacher, but the line is, my mother's not my mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's in, in Body Snatchers, is my Uncle Ira's not my Uncle Ira. 
You know. Exactly. Um, There's somebody changing. Somebody yeah. changing. And, and, uh, and the whole idea of dual identities and being taken over, uh, his, it's, it, it, it precedes science fiction. But uh, it, it's, it's something that it's a duality thing that uh, people still find pretty fascinating. Well, it seems like horror films tend to blossom and there's a renaissance during times of social and political strife. Um, it seems like the time is rife uh, right now and we are what getting... What makes you say that? <laughs> Why would I say that? <laughs> yeah. The fact that we're going to hell is that a, we have a <laughs> lunatic clown in the White House and a fascist government? What makes <laughs> you To be say? fair, probably not the first time someone has said that about a president. Yeah. But in this case, it happens to be true. True. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's, what's, what's uh, the good side of President Trump Trump is that as horrifying as he is, he's he's pretty funny. I mean, he's so <laughs> grotesque that you know you. I mean, I'm still amazed that someone can listen to him give a speech and think that's our man. Well, He'll fix it. Just this morning, he was giving a speech to CPAC, which is admittedly packed mm-hmm. with people who are you know uh, on his side, but. Um, it, the, the responses, it's not so much the speeches as the, the audience responses that are scary because they're boond rally responses. Oh. And, and, and it, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to not see him as some sort of demagogue. Or but, they're do, but, but they're doing exactly the Nazi playbook. Exactly. I mean, the whole thing about demonizing the press and, you know, Goebbels, that quote, and I'm, I don't have it, but Goebbels' whole thing was accuse your opponent of exactly what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not never mind that man behind the curtain. It's blatant lies and alternative realities and alternate facts. And, and constantly restated over and over and over in, in the face of... Uh, so there, there is no other story but the one that we're going to tell you. You know, and that 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 you remember the previous administration, uh, the Bush administration, they had a thing about we're creating our own reality. Yeah. You know, uh, and what's real for us is real, and the rest of it isn't real at all. Well, I now mean, that that's come home to roost. You know, you have what's a Dick Cheney? I mean, he was satanic. <laughs> but what's interesting about unlike Steve Bannon, right? <laughs> well, Steve, what's interesting about Trump that that I find the most remarkable, he's surrounded by villainous people. I mean. But the... The scariest cabinet since Dr. Caligari. <laughs> Did you make that up? That's good. Um, Write that down. He's sur- I'll use it. Um, but he's surrounded by people of different ilks and, and liars. And, but what not, it's mentioned... And all but, billionaires, by the way. But this is yeah. a kleptocracy. This is going to be Russia. I mean, Putin is the wealthiest man in the world. And this whole thing is about such self-enrichment and greed. And why don't we see his, uh, you know, his tax returns? And how are people okay with that? And never forget, more Americans voted against him than for him. Absolutely. Three million. But anyway. But his his idolaters actually are just that. Yeah, they're those faces that Lenny Riffenstahl used. He has has become this cult-like figure. I mean, this Jim Jones kind of figure. And the, the the responses he elicits in his more rabid followers are very, very similar to the responses that we saw in in the, in the Weimar, you know? And I, I, people have pointed this out. And they go, oh, it's so silly because the press doesn't like him and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, what, what's to like? 
Well, in fact, <laughs> yeah. in fact, I blame the media uh, a great deal. I mean, first of all, he's a reality star. Mm-hmm. His mythology has been created by a television show. Mm-hmm. But aside from just ranting about our evil, corrupt, stupid, blundering, dangerous government right now... Um, <laughs> What is redeeming for me, I mean, this is not redeeming, but what I do take amusement in is how thin-skinned, egomaniacal, narcissistic, the guy can't, he's constantly, if you listen to him, 50% of his speech is telling us how great he is. Self-justification. Right. That's, not, why, that's why he continues with his rallies. You know, he, he, he has to... He feeds he has on to feed, He feeds on the he's fact that... He's a monster. That, he's that a vampire. They, that they love him, right? And so he needs to go to these rallies that, that restage his triumphs, right? But... And, but and that, I, 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 I liken it to public masturbation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the man cannot get enough of all of these people screaming at him and saying how wonderful he is. Are you calling Paul Rubens a fascist? <laughs> okay. What was, Joe, what was the first, I, I know Roger Corman always says that he likes to inject a little bit of social uh, social commentary into his your movie uh, Piranha with him actually had that in it was that an important element to you or was it something that was popular at the time well it, 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 it's important in that when you when you get an assignment movie which that was uh, you want to make it your own you want to do something to you know have it stand out from the other nature on the rampage movies Gone that were being made yeah. at the time uh, and there, the original version of that story was not very science fictional at all. Uh, when J- John Sales came on, we added a lot of um, science fiction elements. We also added a lot of political elements, as if this was sort of the revenge of the Vietnam War that, they, that, that these. So that was your addition to this. It was not that way when you first got it. No, no, we we we, we worked our magic on it. But Roger encouraged that. Roger was really happy about. Uh, no, Roger's. You know the classic. Liberal in a very good way. He's he's hypocritical sometimes, but um, he, you know, he made what's the move? The Stranger. What's it called? The the, the Intruder. Intruder with right. Bill Shatner, which is a very overt anti-racist film at a time when it was a brave thing to do. And when he lost his shirt on the it. only movie he lost money on. <laughs> and yeah. then he said, well, you know, maybe I won't do too many more of these. But even <laughs> movies, you know, science fiction and horror have always been. Vehicles for social commenting, Death Race 2000, you know. Oh, I mean, absolutely. But just to interject, there's a movie coming out, I think, this week. But oh, Get, Get out. out? Yeah, I hear it's fantastic. Yeah, I hear nothing but wonderful things about it, and I think he's a, uh, he's a very talented... Jordan Peele. Yeah. Peele. See? Yeah, he's yeah, the Peele. tall one. He's yeah. the other one. Anyway... Um, they did a really funny riff on Gremlins too, uh, on their on their show. I'm <laughs> sure it was. <laughs> it was pla- it was it was a, supposedly the meeting at which the movie was was created, and uh, somebody played me, <laughs> and dressed exactly like we I called Joe him. Dante. Uh, it was obvious. I mean, it, it, we, it, and 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 it wasn't un it wasn't unlike the way the picture really did come together. <laughs> but it was very funny. I mean, these guys are very good. <laughs> and was Spielberg in the? Uh... I don't, I don't think he, I don't think they had a Spielberg lookalike in there. Regardless, this movie Get Out, you can see what it is, but he's described it as a black man's nightmare. But it's very clever in that it deals with, and it's something that I've experienced a number of times. But most white people don't understand. I mean, the black population in the U.S. is ten percent. That's not a lot. <laughs> you know, right. people think it's like, oh, my God, there's so many black people. Not actually. And 
what's fascinating is how often a successful black person is the only black person in the room. And that's interesting. I mean, how do you feel when you're the only black person in the world? I've a number of times been places where I'm the only white person in the world. Mm -hmm. In the world, sorry. That's a twilight zone. (laughs) The only white person in the room. You know, I went to see James Brown at the Apollo when I was 15. And I was literally the only white person for five blocks, you know. It was fine, by the way. There was no no problem. It just is you are aware of it. Well, I, I used to have to go to the movies that I wanted to see when I was in Philadelphia in college. All, were all, didn't play in the theaters that grindhouse. I grindhouses. They were in grindhouses, and they were always in black neighborhoods. And uh, I, I remember going to the Senate Theater uh, in, nor- in North Philadelphia to see a double bill of Carnival of Souls and The Devil's Messenger, two movies that didn't play anywhere else in town. And uh, I was the only white guy. In the theater, and it didn't occur to me until uh, I, I ran a Tweety cartoon, and I laughed at the Tweety cartoon. And a guy leaned over and said, "What you laughing at, white boy?" <laughs> I remember, I, oh, I am the only white person here. <laughs> Did you say, "Well, Sylvester just"? <laughs> no, I just I soldiered on. I watched both pictures. <laughs> Um, I remember I was a kid in 1968 when the original Night of the Living Dead came out. Uh, George Romero said basically he just uh, he hired the best actor for the lead in Dwayne Johnson, who I think just that's happened true. to be African American. I think that's true, and I, it made the movie extraordinary. Exactly. Well, your point is that everything is political, whether it's intended or not. It's a sign of the times. Well, what happens to it at the end? I saw that was political. Too. I saw yeah. Night of the Living Dead at. On, on Hollywood Boulevard as part of a triple feature at the World Theater. I was working as a mailboy at Fox, and there were like three schlock pictures, I don't know, like a giallo and a black exploitation or something. And this movie comes on that I was so unprepared for. I knew nothing about it, and it was like, holy shit, what? Oh, my God. And I was well aware of the politics as I watched it. And what was amazing is the end when your hero is basically shot and thrown on the pile. And (laughs) it was quite... And I remember coming to work next day and telling everybody, there's this extraordinary movie. And they all looked at me like, what's it called? (laughs) (laughs) Now, we came of age at a time where there was a newfound activism on campuses primarily. You know, that's I was involved in anti-war marches and things. That went, you didn't go to college, John. Nope. You went right from high school into your mailroom job, right? Not right. I was. I taught for about eight months. I was. And you I, went to Europe, too, didn't you? Well, I was in Europe two right, and a half right, years, right, but right. I was. But before that, I I left. I went to a private school called Oakwood, which is kind of a hippie school. I'd gone to public school, and now I'm, and I was in the ninth grade there, and then the tenth grade, and I was there on a half scholarship because my parents could not afford it, and I was a wise ass, I guess. And you, uh, yeah, me, hard to believe. <laughs> and uh, anyway, they took my scholarship away, so technically they didn't throw me out, but they did, and I was put in a program at UCLA. Uh, which was basically, it was the Department of Education. It's a long story, but I I literally got there, this program for high school kids, and I started tutoring uh, African-American kids bust in from Compton to UCLA, uh, little seven- and eight-year-old boys and girls. It was a wonderful job. And uh, Ronald Reagan 
was elected governor of California. I don't know if you remember this. The first act of uh, Governor Reagan was to cut the University of California budget by 50%, from which it's never recovered, by the way. But he, um, so my program disappeared. And, but I was in the middle of this thing they were doing. So they said, you want to just stay here and keep teaching? And so I taught there for like six, seven months. And I had my own parking space. I had a little scooter, got $1.35 an hour. And I taught. And then I was able to finagle a job as a mailboy at Fox. So you're right. I didn't go to college. And then I went to Europe. So, but you have always been fairly politically active and conscious. When, where oh, did that awakening happen? I was part of that happen? crowd in Century City that was rounded up for protesting the war in Vietnam. I'll never forget it because there was Charlton Heston and Paul Newman. And I'm going, look, they're arresting them too. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they like arrested 2,000 people. <clears throat> and what about you, Joe? Were you in school? Is that where you discovered a political activism or uh, awareness? I, I was completely unpolitical until uh, the riots at the um, Democratic Convention in 1968, when I, uh, like many people in front of their television, uh, became radicalized. I mean, it was it was like they were beating these people to death with these truncheons and. That was a police riot, by the yeah. way, mm-hmm. and it, and it was it was it, it it just something went off, and I said, well, this is this is wrong, and I became I started to read the the, the, the papers for uh, the New York Post at the time was a liberal rag, and uh, I, I I was getting all my news for the New York Post and the Village Voice and all that stuff, and I and I became I, I was self educated uh, <laughs> because there really wasn't that much else going on in, uh, where I was, um, and I became. I, I wouldn't say an activist, but I just became a political, which I hadn't been before. Well, people think of you as directing comedy and horror, but there has some of your really serious stuff. I mean, the Screwfly solution that you did for Masters of Horror is intense, dark, pretty humorless, and very like aware. Yeah, like exactly. Joe. Exactly. <laughs> that's the, yeah. that's intense, that's, dark, humorless. That, <laughs> That's based on a, a story by James Tiptree, which was a, I had read when I was. Well, he a, was a laugh riot. When I was at, when I she was a laugh riot. Yeah, um, when when uh, when I was at Corman's, I had thought I'd read the story and I thought, boy, this would be a, this would really be a good movie. And I never was, of course, able to get the rights or anything like that. And then when it came time to do Masters of Horror for the first episode, I tried to get the rights to Screwfly, I couldn't do it. Then the next season, we did manage to get the rights, and Sam Ham wrote, uh, I think, a, a really good screenplay out of it. Uh, and then having made the Screwfly Solution, which is about a plague that causes men to kill women, uh, usually with religious overtones. It's extremely brutal. Uh, <laughs> I, I looked at it and I said, oh, my God. I mean, nobody, I couldn't, nobody would see this. as it. People would walk out. This is, this is one of the <laughs> least entertaining things I've ever seen. But it was, it was a lot of fun to do. And, um, and I think th- I see echoes of it everywhere, particularly in the way women are treated. Well, Still. when you realize that... The majority of American women, 54%, voted for Trump. It's deeply disturbing. I mean, you know, I mean, other than make the word pussy acceptable in common conversation, (laughs) the man has no accomplishment. I mean, you know, he's 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 a adulterer. He's twice, three. No, he's everything that you couldn't be in a candidate. He's a pig, and it's so interesting that he. He, I'm just fascinated by the but, whole thing. But the whole, the, 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 uh, uh, horrified. A, a whole lot of people who voted for him saw that their white privilege was being taken away. 
or felt, felt that it was. And that this was really the last gasp, the last chance they were going to get to have it back before uh, the, the progressives came and took over and made them have multi-gender bathrooms. And so they all turned out. People who never voted before turned out for this I, guy. And I, I don't even you. think they voted particularly for him. I think they voted against everything else. Uh, the evangelical uh, woman, I'm, trying, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name. She, she wrote a piece I read that was fascinating where she confronted all of his sins and flaws and basically said, well, the Lord has sent us, and she used a great expression, a cracked vessel. Jesus is using <laughs> a cracked sure. vessel, but nonetheless, he's bringing us the water. You know, and I mean, just something is, you know, remember when Trump talked about people can go to the, any bathroom, any toilet in the Trump Tower. He, he totally said he was a total supporter of mm-hmm. rights. And this guy Sessions, you know, he is a dangerous, racist, deeply creepy, creepy man. And for one of his first acts, he rescinds that. It's just mean-spirited. It also shows that something we knew years ago, but that Trump's word means nothing. And it's just fascinating to me. It's like, I don't, well, regardless, the the thing about movies, I wrote a book called Monsters in the Movies. And part of that book, I interviewed filmmakers. And one of them was Mr. Dante. And I interviewed John Carpenter and Guillermo del Toro and Sam Raimi. Mm Mm-hmm. And David Cronenberg, and then Ray Harryhausen and Christopher Lee. I think that's it. And Joe said something very, as he does, very succinct, which was, I asked people, what is a monster and what is horror and stuff? I mean, Guillermo has very strict rules about what is a monster and what, you know, a lot of things I classified as monsters he wouldn't accept as a monster. But Joe said the wisest and clearest thing, monsters and metaphors. So you have, you have the most obvious, like right off the top, Godzilla. Right. So the only country in the world that has been bombed with atomic weapons makes a movie about a fire-breathing, atomic, radioactive monster that destroys cities. Subtle? It's not. <laughs> and Joe actually suggested it would make a good game. Name the movie, name the metaphor. But it... <laughs> It really is true. And so when you talk about, one of the things I talk about is zombies. Zombies have become the monster of the 21st century. They are the zeitgeist monster. And what are zombies? You know, you can go through it historically. Who's the first zombie? Lazarus. Mm-hmm. You know, but at least in the Christian world, you can go in Greek myths and stuff. There are many of them. But the point is, what is a zombie? And it's so interesting. A zombie is what you need it to be. Right. Well, it's a, an animated body without the humanity left. You mean like Republicans? <laughs> that's exactly. Such a, that's such a Bob Hope joke. <laughs> Only he would have said Democrat. <laughs> he switched. He, he, was he switched. Equal yeah. opportunity. He became. Yeah. 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 Um, and the wealthier he got. Right. As, 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 as often happens, which is, which yeah. is why we're, we're stuck well, in the guns. Uh, but when, when you were a kid, I mean, the atomic 
fear was a real thing. Oh, it's terrifying. You know, you would I mean, do look, I, I'm from a generation where we cover. didn't know when we got up in the morning if there would be another no, He a, made a, a, a movie about it. Exactly. But, that, but, that, but, that's, but that's because we really didn't know if that weekend the, of the Cuban well, crisis it, whether there was going to be a Monday. Yeah, it could be. It was real. What's interesting is uh, my son, when he was younger, how long ago was Iron Giant, whenever that was? Mm. I took him to see Iron Giant, which takes place in the 50s, and there's a, a scene in it in a classroom where a very authentic duck and cover parody is shown. And Max turned to me, and he was young. I mean, he was a kid still. And he turned to me and he said, did you do that? I said, absolutely. He said, you got under the desk and turned to the wall and put your hands over your head. And I said, yes, we did. And he looked at me and he said, and you thought that would protect you from an atomic <laughs> bomb? And he's right. I mean, we did. I mean, we were doing it. Was well, ridiculous. I don't think that we really did. Uh, they, well, we did what we, the sirens we did what Friday we were told. We did what we were told. And we were told that, that this was what you do. And, when, and, and uh, most of us said, and so when the walls fall in on us, we won't be, won't be killed. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was what you did. But it wasn't so much that. It was the fact that when an airplane flew over, you thought there was a bomb in it. And every time a plane flew over, was that during the Cuban everybody would t- no. This was in the fifties. Uh, it was you, a lot more would, paranoid in New Jersey. Would, yeah, I think so. As a Californian, yeah, I didn't you, have you, you, you had these movies where these atomic bombs were going off and giant insects were being created. Oh, and all that's this stuff. all those radioactive yeah. fear. That's movies. all oh, metaphors yeah. for world thing. without but end. We were really thinking it. We were really thinking it. And on the way home from school, somebody would say, you know, how if the bomb dropped right now, do you think we could get home? In time. But that's when Russia and the United States were the only people with an atomic bomb. Then later Israel got one, but we didn't have to worry about them. You know, now Pakistan, Korea, both Koreas, who knows? England, France. And what's so fascinating about it, there was a book two years ago that I... I can't think of the title, but it was really, it was about all the near misses and, and accidents and with nuclear weapons in the last 10 years. Did you just say nuclear? Yes, I did. <laughs> Proud homage to George Bush. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> did you hear what happened? What, the night <clears throat> that Trump became president in Texas, George W. Bush ran into the bedroom <clears throat> and he said, Laura, Trump just won. Yeehaw! And she looked at him and she said, why are you so happy? He said, don't you understand? I'm, I'm no longer the worst president. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, An apocryphal story. You can, you can find things in movies, um, whether they're there or not. There's a whole scholastic, you know, academic field of film theory. It doesn't matter what the intent of the movie right. was. Yeah. It's what it's you there. make of it. it, it the mm-hmm. movie it, it exists the way you see it. And whatever you take out of it is what you get out of it. And if, you, if, it, if the filmmaker has made a mistake and you're taking the wrong thing out, well, that's his problem. But for you, the movie is what it is. And, you know, when, when, when I was a kid, a, a political movie was like the last hurrah. Mm-hmm. You know, or advising consent. Seven Days or in the May. Best Man. Or right. Seven Days in May, which is still a pretty good movie. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and those were those that that was the po- politics of the day. Strange, sure strange love and, mm-hmm. and fail safe and love. you know all those things. But, uh, but but now the politics are are so ingrained in everything that every movie is a political movie, no matter what it's about. If it's a Little Miss Sunshine, it's a political movie. I mean, there's always something in the movie that's taking a stand about something that is part of people's lives and that they have to stand. Uh, for or against. How cognizant are you of that when you're making a movie, John? Well, I'm very aware of it, but 
I'm sure things happen in the movies that I can't. Con- I'm unaware of. I mean, what was a- inten- your your most intentional um, socio political injection into one of your comedies? Well, this is going to sound obnoxious, but I can talk about it now, which is uh, Coming to America was pitched to be, had different title, but was pitched to be by Eddie Murphy. It's a fairy, there's no story there. I mean, it's an African prince from a fantasy kingdom in Africa comes to New York to find a, a queen. And he really didn't have a story. He had a germ of an idea. And he pitched it to me and said, what do you think? And I thought about it, and I came home and talked to my wife, Deborah, Nadulman Landis, who is a costume, was a costume designer. And I said, what do you think about this? And she said, well, it's Cinderella. And I said, yeah. And she said, you got to do it. And I said, why? And her first reason was, because we're going to invent a fantasy kingdom, but in Africa. It's not Bavaria. It's not, <laughs> you know. And then I realized, and this is going to sound really obnoxious, but you asked me. I realized, wait a minute. Hollywood studios, uh, up till that, not independence, but Hollywood pictures, when a studio made a film with an African-American actor in a lead, the color of the actor's skin was part of the plot. Sidney Poitier always played the black man. He he was the black, I mean, literally in movies like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner or In Heat of the Night or I mean, so many of them. He's the black guy. That was part of the plot. The, the being after being colored was part of the storyline, and I realized. I mean, Eddie's the black guy in Trading Places. Eddie's the black guy in Forty Eight Hours, and I realized this is a fairy tale. I will make a truly old-fashioned fairy tale where everyone happens to be either African or African American. But their color has nothing to do with the plot. It's a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's tons of jokes about African-American culture and stuff like that. But the bottom line is it's a Jeanette McDonald marie Chevalier picture in, in, in middle Europe. It's a Lubitsch picture. I'm serious. And I realized Paramount Pictures is going to spend a great deal of money. And Deborah gets to go crazy and make all these costumes. And we will create a movie that no one will notice is a black movie. And I was well aware of that. And when you see the movie, I think there are 56 speaking parts. Three of them are white people. <laughs> and the rest are, are either African-Americans or Africans. And that had nothing to do with the plot. And it was a huge international success. And for me, that was one of my greatest accomplishments. I mean, that sounds obnoxious, but it's true. No. And, it, and it changed things. What about you with matinee, Joe? Did that come out of fears that you had at the, in the 50s? I, uh, let me interject. Yeah. I met Joe as an adult, arguably. When I saw <laughs> matinee, I realized that's his bedroom. With was, those famous monsters, it was my bedroom. It was my. They were my actually my my monster magazines, my my photos on Your the wall, my, yeah. my posters, my everything. I mean, it was it was very autobiographical. But when it originally came to me, it wasn't set in the fifties uh, at all. It was it was a, a fantasy about a haunted movie theater. And uh, when Charlie Haas came on, and we decided to set it during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It, it just changed the whole. Well, was there a William movie. Castle guy? There was a horror movie actor character. 
Oh, you radically changed yeah. it. It was quite a bit different. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, uh, it, what was interesting, the movie didn't exactly set the world on fire, but uh, it, ha- it has its adherence. And one thing that was nice was going to the movies and seeing that people brought their kids to show them what it was like, what kind of movies they saw when they were kids. And the fact wow. that there was only one screen in those theaters. <laughs> yeah, you know, imagine that. There's only radical. one screen. And uh, you know, and and the movie within the movie Mant is right. Your own irradiated parody uh, of movies that really exist uh, existed in the fifties. And and William Shatner, and which has lots of dialogue stolen, lock, socket, barrel from Burt Gordon movies. (laughs) Burt Gordon, (laughs) Burt had a had a a thing that he used to do, or asked the writers to do, that whenever a, a big word was used, it would always be explained within the sentence what the word meant. And so we, we had all the, all the expository dialogue, which was uh, read by Robert Cornthwaite, who was in the thing, the wonderful man, uh, could make anything sound great. Um, and it, it, it accelerated or speeded up growth, that kind of thing. And that's, accelerated or speeded up. And that's actually from real, whole chunks of dialogue from Sam Katzman movies are in this, this picture. So as... Society changes. Have what? How have your fears changed? I mean, certainly my fears are exactly the same. And what's frightening is, you know, people who don't learn from history and the kind of ignorance and and race. I have to say that racism. I was in England. Um, I spent a great deal of time in England, and when Brexit happened is when I realized, oh, my God, Trump's going to win. And so this is till, not just an American Yeah, thing. up till that point. Yeah. No, that they can win. Up to that point, I thought it was inconceivable. I remember when uh, McCain was running with Sarah Palin, Oprah Winfrey was asked, you know, what do you think? And she said, in my heart of hearts, I just can't believe that the American public is so stupid they would vote for this idiot woman. And that, you know was what happened. But I really believe now, I didn't at the time, but I really believe when, when Barack Obama became president, forget policy, forget Democrat, Republican, there was a segment of our population, their heads blew up. There's an N-word in the White House and they went running around screaming. And I really think that racism and the way that uh, Trump played it. Mexican rapist? What's he talking about? Everything he says is wrong. The seven countries that he, he did his ban, we've had no terrorist act from anyone from any of those countries. Saudi Arabia, where he has business concerns, happened to fly into the World Trade Center, but they're fine. And the idea of Syrians, of turning away Syrians, they did this before to my relatives. I mean, the the Jews were not... America turned away the Jews. Everybody turned away the Jews. And they were over 6 million cooked. The Syrians, the people who are fleeing, are fleeing terrorism. They're not the threat. And, And to see them as terrorists, all the major... Massacres, all the major acts of terrorism in our country were done by white Christian men. We're not banning them. No, we're electing you know, them. And it's yeah. just, it's just uh, you know, the Christian right, it's called, is neither Christian nor right. <laughs> 
Well, let's talk about Vietnam. Let's shift gears a little bit. Well, that's another case where, as a child, see, I'm different than Joe. I grew up in a house that was fairly political. My sis, older sister, Joan, was a freedom writer. My parents were very involved in the civil rights movement. So when Vietnam came along, it just went right into there. And I don't know if you recall, but Martin Luther King... He spoke out against the war in Vietnam. He understood what it was. And the famous Muhammad Ali line when he rejected the draft, he said, uh, you know, they're sending black men, to white men sending black men to kill yellow men. <laughs> but <laughs> I, as a child, Vietnam just made no sense to me. I thought, how do you, what do you, how do you win a war? There's no, like, it's not like the bat. How do you win this there's no achievable sort of, victory. Yeah, there's no achievable victory. And then people, you know, people have forgotten, but they were lying to us. They misrepresented the, the I mean, it was completely outrageous. And, you know, the fact that President Nixon, he finally was thrown out of office. But Kissinger should be in prison. These men were traitors. You know, he Johnson had negotiated a peace and. Kissinger went to, we now know, Kissinger went to Paris and said to them, we'll give you a better deal. And so he could, I mean, so there have been in history outrageous things, but our country, you you want to really believe that our constitution and our values will protect us. But then you look at the Supreme Court, you look at Dred Scott, you look, I mean, it's a very frightening time and there's a real coup going on. And it's very much like the Manchurian candidate. And there's very real reason to believe the Russians are involved. I mean, it's like, it's like let's get John Frankenheimer in here. <laughs> well, well, let's bring it back to movies for a moment. Um, Manchurian candidate's a movie. It is indeed. Let's talk about that. It's a good movie. Um, but See the original one, not the remake. Well, Adam Simon made a terrific uh, documentary called American Nightmare that um, is all about the influence of the Vietnam War in what became the modern horror film and how it influenced well, particularly and civil rights and civil rights but particularly uh, with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that came out in 1974 do you remember how you reacted to that did, did it affect you more than just as a visceral horror film or did you see beyond that? I didn't see it as political when I saw it it just scared me to death I only remember uh, I was doing trailers for Roger Corman at the time and um, I, you had to take the trailers to the MPAA and get them uh, approved and I had never heard of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre until I saw the black and white rough cut of the trailer which was run for the people at the MPAA whose heads literally exploded <laughs> just kept yelling no no every time a shot came on no 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 now what's funny is you go back and look at that movie it is absolutely not a graphic movie yes there's everything no, is suggested everything's suggested you never see any real Cutting, or, you know, unlike the sequel, which is very gory, yeah, and uh, fantastic, by the way, and very funny, <laughs> yeah. But, but red humor, but it, uh, all of the stuff in, in Chainsaw, which is made over a long period, you know, in sixteen millimeter uh, on weekends with borrowed short ends and stuff. I mean, it's it's a it's it's a remarkable movie, and of course. It took a long time to make any money because it was released by Bryanstone, which was kind of a... It was mafia. A mob, yeah. A mafia yeah. place. Um, but it's... Uh, and I don't even know what the, where the rights situation is on it now. But it was, it was an extremely um, uh, effective movie and, and it, very influential on a lot of people. Although many people didn't see it when it was new. What is... What, when you ask about the politics of it... I think that's a movie you have that I don't think Toby meant any 
I don't think the filmmakers were interested in making anything but a terrifying film. And that's what you that's what film theory is. You can project all different things on it. Fear of rednecks, <laughs> fear of strangers, fear of Texas, you know. And um <laughs> there's so many things you can project onto that movie, but Adam Simon's movie is excellent. Um but he talks about the chaos of the 60s being reflected. But that's like, what's the French movie? J'accuse? Or how do, how do you yeah, J'accuse. J'accuse, where you use the mutilated people coming forward. And then the reactions to First World War fan of the opera and all that stuff. And then Frankenstein. And what was that a reaction to? The Depression? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was pretty middle of a depression, all right. It definitely was. Well, we've got a couple of questions that we're going to get to from social media. Daniel asks, given how influential and political Frank Capra's movies can be, can you talk about his influence on your pictures like Gremlins? Frank Capra's influence on... uh, Well, um, Gremlins is set in a Frank Capra-like town. Uh, There's a lot of elements of its wonderful life in in the skeletal story of Gremlins. Uh, The the, the reactions and the interreactions of the townspeople are all very much from... Uh, that movie, which, as you know, is a watershed movie for Capra and James Stewart because they had just come back from the war. It was also a failure, and, it was and a, the company went bankrupt. And it was a big failure, but it was also a, a big risk for them because it was not the kind of movie that people expected. Uh, and it didn't become popular until many years later. Until when television. It, when it ran into public domain, briefly. Uh, and then uh, kept being run over and over. Now it's now it's uh, an acknowledged classic. But do you know why it was a failure? I mean, uh, it was a very clear because re- it was you know look at that movie. It is dark. <laughs> it's dark. It is a dark movie. It has a happy sentimental ending, but it's a dark picture. It is. It and is. and the war was over, and people didn't want to go see a dark movie. And so the influence on Gremlins was basically. Well, the idea was to to merge Hitchcock and uh, and Capra, you know, to do uh, to do the birds meet. So it's a wonderful life with you no know, Disney. You have a, oh, there's there's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in there. Um, yeah, it's it's a basic it's your basic blob monster movie plot, uh, but it has to be grafted onto something, and it has to be an idealized town. Uh, and it's not a very realistic town. It's a backlot town on purpose. The original idea of that movie was to go out and shoot it in Oregon or something. And I said, it won't work. you got all these stylized creatures. They're going to look stupid. you got to put them in a stylized <laughs> background. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons the picture works, I think, is because it's got this, this Hollywood uh, veneer around well, it. Well, it has a classic Christmas oh, kind of. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Christmas. Well, you have a little bit of Christmas with Trading Places. Daniel asked the same thing about yours. What about the the influences that created Trading Places? I know Preston Sturgis had a lot of influence on it. Well, Trading Places was a script that came to me. It was written by uh, Tim Harris and Herschel Weingrod. And when I read it, what attracted me to it was quite overtly the fact that it was a, it was a screwball comedy. It was... If you look at this, this, what are called screwball, all of them are very political. And they always deal with class and economics. They always deal with poor people and wealthy people. And Preston Sturgis is a guy who I just think was brilliant and for a while the most successful guy in the business. But and the he, first writer-director. He, he's not the first writer-director. Studio writer-director. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. What is interesting about... Sturgis is he made a movie 
during World War II called The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which is wonderfully funny. Yeah, 1944. And yeah. very patriotic. But the story is about a small town where Betty Hutton gets pregnant and she doesn't know which of the seven or eight guys <laughs> she happened to be with is the father. So Eddie Bracken steps up to volunteer to be the father, the only one who hasn't slept with her. It is really racy. It's wonderfully funny. It's a great film. But how did he get away with that? I'm still totally amazed by that movie. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, Preston Sturgis made social comedies. All his comedies had uh, Great McGinty. All of them had Sullivan's Travels. Very yeah. political. Oh, brother, where art thou? <laughs> Frank Capra made them. Even Leo McCary. There are a lot of directors who made these wonderful films. So when I read the script, I said, my God, this is about class. And... Some people think it's about race, but it's really in America it's about class, um, although now it's about race. But nonetheless, what was fascinating to me is I said I could make a 30s com. I could make one of those pictures. So all of those guys had huge influence on it. The only thing I did to it, really, I made some changes, but I made it contemporary only by language and nudity. <laughs> Nothing else. I mean, everything else in that picture could be 1932. Well, thank you guys for taking part in a little Daniel brisk only gets, The only question gets Daniel. <laughs> He's the only one who had good questions. <laughs> so, anyway, thank thanks you, for, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you can reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG, one word, of course. And then don't forget, you can subscribe on iTunes. Rate us and leave feedback so we can find ways to make the show even better. And thank you guys, Joe and John, for joining us on Postmortem. Thank you, Mick. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.